All right, if you will turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. Now, no, this is not a typo on the screen. Our goal is to be able to work through most of the book. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 935. Now, when it comes to raising children, we all want to pass on good things, right? We want to pass on things that will benefit our children. We dream of passing on wonderful things, of family traditions, of a large inheritance, of the values and things that fill our lives that we want to see our children marked by. But inevitably, whether through our efforts or a lack through of, we also pass on other things, right? We pass on maybe it's simply our genetics, They look like us, they act like us, and they also have the same problems that we do. Well, when a child leaves a home, when they go out on our own, their life is not a blank slate. They are affected by many things, and their life for the rest of their life, for however long the Lord gives them, will be affected by many things. But I want to suggest to you this morning that nothing has a greater impact on the life of our children than the vision of God that we will paint for them. That nothing will affect our children more than the vision of God that we paint for them. And this is either by our efforts or lack thereof. So as we explore this text this morning, I want us to grapple with this reality, that the responsibility of making disciples out of children is in the hands of parents. And I think we recognize that. But what I want us to also see is that this occurs within the church and with her aid. So that we as parents who are given this task of discipling our children are not on an island that we do this with the church, within the church, and within her aid. So let's use 2 Timothy as a guide for looking at these truths. Start with me in chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gives us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So when we consider what it means to pass on faith to our children, 
we must wrestle with the reality that all humans express faith. This is part of what it means to be a human, that our, we have faith and it is in something. But you're here this morning, and for most of you, you're members here, and so I would assume that your desire for your children is not just that they would have faith in something, but that they would have a true faith. And I think what is clear in this passage is that a true faith is essentially this. It's a faith that has Jesus as its object. See, Paul says in verse 8 that it is the testimony of the Lord that we're called to cling to, this testimony about Jesus. And if we are presenting them a faith, and I'm going to continue to use the language either intentionally or unintentionally, if we are presenting them with a faith in anything else but Christ and Him crucified, we are giving them a damnable faith. We each seek to raise our children with a true faith, with Jesus as its object, because the exclusivity of the Christian gospel is that the object of true faith is found in the Son of God made flesh, the one who was and, in, and is God, who was born in the likeness of human flesh yet without sin, who lived in complete obedience to the law of God but died under the wrath of God. Yet he did not stay there, but he was raised to life, never to die again. And his work now is to gather those across space and time who place their faith in him. And I start here in a sermon specifically about family discipleship, because if we start anywhere else, we are more than wasting our time. This is the faith that we seek to pass to our children. And so the charge that Paul gives to Timothy is the charge that I want to issue to you this morning, that we are tasked, as Paul says in verse 6, with the task of fanning flames. We are tasked with passing the faith, a true faith, a gospel faith. And God, we must remember, is the only one who can ignite that flame right? By the Spirit, He is the one who ignites the flame, but He ordains it so that our efforts are as instruments in His hands for His work to be accomplished. And so from this book, I believe that we will see certain things that we should be practicing, but then all within the community of faith, all within the church, because this is a community effort. And so each of us, with kids and without kids, Each of us, as members of this body, are tasked with passing the faith, of fanning flames, of seeing the faith go from generation to generation. Because as we sang and as we confessed, our legacies do not survive. But the the faith, as Jude puts it, is once for all delivered to the saints. So first, let's consider how we pass this faith in the home. Read again verse 3 with me. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you." Paul starts his second letter to Timothy by directing Timothy's attention to the hereditary nature of the faith. 
Paul references his own ancestors and states that he serves God as did they. Now, it may seem odd to us as Paul was certainly not raised in a Christian home. Yet we should not neglect the reality that the faith of the Israelites expressed because it is not unlike our own. It is just from a different perspective. Because faithful Israelites had the same faith that we do. In terms of content, the object of their faith was the coming salvation that the Lord would provide and the coming Messiah that the Lord would provide. And so for us, the object is that same Messiah, but that we look back on the work that he's accomplished. The Israelites looked forward to what would happen. We look back on what has happened. And so while we have greater clarity and definition to the promises of God on this side of the cross, we share the same faith as the Israelites. And this is what Paul is seeking to show, that his ancestors expressed faith in God that he is the keeper of his promises. But not only do we share in the same faith of the Israelites, but the intended mode of transmission of that faith is the same. The faith is meant to be passed by parents to their children. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So this is the content of the faith. This is the faith that the Israelites are supposed to express. But then they're given this task. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and, you shall be, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, the activity of diligently teaching our children the way of God, the ways of God, the character of God, this has always been the primary means of discipleship within the people of God. See, those humans that are running around in your house, small they may be, but they are still a full person. A full person with a soul that has an everlasting destiny. A soul that they owe to God. And so endeavor to serve God, as did Paul, as did the Israelites, and pass the faith to them. And as we do... Let us follow in the example of Lois and Eunice, these two women who passed the faith well, primarily because they knew and loved their God, and they knew and loved his scriptures. Flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me. Look in verse 14. Paul continued to talk to Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, Paul sees the example of faith in Lois and Eunice and he sees how they have from childhood taught Timothy the faith, the faith that comes from these sacred writings. Now keep in mind the sacred writings that Paul is talking about here is not the New Testament. He's talking about the law and prophets, the Old Testament. And he makes this bold claim that they, the Old Testament, 
are able to make Timothy wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See, it's evident that Lois and Eunice were gripped by the reality of God's word, that it reveals God, that it reveals the way to God, it reveals salvation from God. And so they endeavor to show their families and their children this reality. And Timothy was the benefactor of this, right? We would all say that Timothy benefited from having Lois as his grandmother and Eunice as his mother. Why? Well, look what they did. Look in verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the secret writings, the sacred writings. This word acquainted here means to show or to experience. This means that from childhood, Lois and Eunice have sought to show, to demonstrate, to give Timothy an experience of what it means to see God and to see how he reveals his plans for salvation specifically in the Old Testament. So let's get real practical this morning because I I think that we all recognize the reality that this is our task. But yet, for many of us, we fail in actually participating in it and carrying this out. And so what I want to do for you this morning is I want to give you concrete steps by which you can begin to see this happen in your own home. Here's three ways that we can start doing this even today. The first which we've already heard referenced this morning, is family worship. And when I talk about family worship, I mean to read, to sing, and to pray. See, creating a time of worship in our homes with our families is the first step in family discipleship. It is not the whole picture, but it is the first step. This is where we begin, by creating a regular and expected time where you as a family read the Bible sing songs of praise, and pray to our Lord. Now, there's much that could be said about this. In fact, last year, about this time, Blake preached a whole sermon from Deuteronomy 6 that we read about what it looks like to create a word-saturated home. And there's this book, I want to read a small excerpt from it, called Family Worship by Donald Whitney that is out on the book table that you can go and grab today that is, in my mind, the go-to book in terms of the plan for family worship. But I want to read this short excerpt from this book real quick. It says this, A survey by the Barna Research Group supports the claim that parents are not participating in family worship. And then he quotes Barna. 85% of parents with children under the age of 13 believe they have primary responsibility for teaching their children about religious beliefs and spiritual matters. However, A majority of parents don't spend any time during a typical week discussing religious matters or studying religious materials with their children. Parents generally rely upon their church to do all of the religious training their children will receive. And then he says this, Having your your family in a Christ-exalting, gospel-centered, Bible-teaching local church is crucial to Christian parenting, but it is not enough for conveying to your family all you want to teach to them about God and your beliefs. This is why family worship is so important. Because even more importantly, God deserves to be worshipped daily in our homes and by our families. So what does it look like? Well, it's the read, sing, pray model. To read the Bible, 
Pick a passage. If you've got small children, use a storybook Bible. And then talk about it. Talk about what it says. Talk about the content. Talk about the application. And then sing songs. Taylor weekly posts the songs that we're going to be singing together on YouTube and on Spotify. Grab those songs. Have them playing in the background or sing those songs during family worship so that your kids can start to learn them and sing them with full hearts here on Sunday morning. And then do not neglect to pray. Pray as a family. Pray that you are a family that is saturated by this word. Now again, more could be said about this, but let me urge you this morning. If this is something that your family practices, persist, persevere, do not grow weary. Even when it gets difficult to wrangle the kids, even when it seems like they're not paying attention, even when it seems they're not getting anything out of it, even when you don't feel like doing it, persist and persevere. Or maybe this is something that you've had in the past. Maybe this is something you are not currently practicing. Start afresh. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions, but a new year is a great time to start something new or start something afresh. Or maybe this has never been a part of your family before. Start today. Confess your failure in saturating your home with the word and start today. Don't delay. And if you want helpful, practical steps, grab this book. Go listen to the sermon from last year. Make this a part of your weekly, daily routine. And kids start to grasp onto this, right? Uh, There was a season where we didn't practice this as a family, and then we endeavored to start. And after a couple of weeks, uh, Graham began to expect it. So we would eat dinner, and then we'd do it immediately after. It was just the best time that worked for our family. And now it's to the point where I get done eating, and Graham says, Dad, are we going to read the Bible now? So I don't even have to remember. Graham reminds me that it's something that we need to do. So persist. And husbands, take charge. Fathers, take charge. Make family worship a priority. Because if you don't make it a priority, they won't. Now, keep this in mind. Read, sing, pray. Family worship is a vital component for saturating our homes. But this cannot be the extent of spiritual formation that that occurs in our homes. This can't be it. This is step one. This is the starting place. And I say this as one who is guilty of this very thing. Of assuming, oh, we did family worship five times this week. Well, I have faithfully carried out my role in discipling my family and discipling my son. So we have to persist in doing more. And so I want to give you two ways that you can think about participating in family discipleship outside of family worship. The first is something that I call debriefs. Family debriefs occur at times when you are reunited as a family. This might be after a day that you're gone at work. This might be after service on Sunday mornings. This might be on Wednesday nights. But the mindset here is for parents to take responsibility for what their children are being taught in all of life. These aren't times to just get an idea of what your children's schedule looked like for that day, but these are rather meant for gaining an awareness of what they are being taught, what they're being exposed to, what they're experiencing, and then helping them filter those things through a biblical perspective. This can start by asking good questions. 
asking good questions about what they learn on Sunday mornings in Sunday school, what asking good questions about interactions with their friends that day, asking about interactions with the spouse that was with them that day, and then helping them interpret what they see, what they experience, what they feel. This isn't just surface level. This is getting to the heart of the issue. How did you respond when your friend said that? How did you feel when mom told you to do that? And also, offer your own experience. Offer your own reactions. It's not just for them to tell you about their day. Tell them about your day. Tell them about the ways you saw the Lord working in the day. Tell them about the things that went poorly in the day. Because if you're participating, if you're giving to them, this will encourage them to reciprocate, right? For them to participate in the discussion and maybe even prompt them in ways you would not expect. But as we will see in a moment, parenting is much more about teaching what is true and setting an example for our children. So the hope in these debriefs is that our children would understand and grapple with the reality of God, that He is in all of life, that we can see Him in all of life if we will simply look and take His word as true. See, taking a biblically-based, gospel-centered perspective and bringing it to bear in the weekly routine is the goal. And in due time, our hope is that our children will begin to use the lens of Scripture on their own. So family debriefs, using times when you gather to debrief, to talk about the day, and to talk about how the Lord is working. And second, moments. Moments are not scheduled. Moments are seized. The goal of moments is to train our children to always look vertically. See, it is all too easy, even for us, even those of us who have been walking with the Lord for decades, it is all too easy to meander through life and only consider God at regularly scheduled times. This is our temptation, and because our sin nature is passed on to our children, it is their temptation as well to ignore God in all of life. So we must lead in directing the attention of our children to God and His ways. When considering moments, we take both the common and uncommon events in life and we use them as a catalyst for spiritual conversations. And part of the beauty of this practice is there are unlimited ways that this can be accomplished. We can use the music that we listen to. We can use the TV shows and the movies we watch. We can use the things we see when we're driving in the car. We can use the things that we see that are wonderful in creation, and we can use the things that we see that are terrible in creation. We can use breaking news. We can use events that we attend. Literally, any event in life, any moment you have with your kids can be seized to direct their attention vertically. Show them the wonderful handiwork of God when you gaze at the sunset. Show them the beauty of reconciliation when they sin against their sibling. Show them the bankrupt lifestyle that is portrayed in media. Show them the glory of God. Seize moments for the sake of this vision, that they would see God's glory in their minds and in their hearts. I've heard it put this way. This is what 
we want for ourselves, this is what we want for our children, that this would be true. Only to sit and think of God. Oh, what a joy it is. To think the thought, to breathe the name, earth has no higher bliss. Now, one last comment about moments. Of all the moments that we need to seize, that we need to leverage, the moments of our own personal weakness and sin are of the utmost importance. Brothers and sisters, our children do not need super parents. Our families do not need husbands and wives, fathers and mothers who appear as though they are immune to failure. Our children do not need the social media version of our lives as though everything is right. See, when we, in our unwillingness to show our sin and weakness to our children, we do nothing but obscure the beauty of the gospel. Our children do not need parents who appear perfect. Our children need humble, Jesus-clinging parents. So confess your sin, point out your weaknesses, and show how the grace of Christ is sufficient for you. You do not have it all together. Do not make your kids think that you do. Christ has it all together, and you trust Christ. And we do this. We take a hold of these moments. We confess our sin. We repent of it. Parents, you ought to be the chief repenters in your home. Show your children in moments of sin what it looks like to confess, to repent, and to run to the cross. When you grow angry with your children, ask them for forgiveness. Husbands, when you speak unkindly to your wife in front of your children, show your children what it looks like to pursue reconciliation. Wives, when you fail to serve your husbands well, point that out to your children. Or maybe it's in times of distress when you don't know the right way to go or you don't know when the suffering within, do not try to put on a brave face, but show your children what it looks like to utterly depend on the Lord. See, we as parents, we have no obligation to buy our kids the right clothes. We have no obligation to make sure they're a part of the right clubs and teams or they get to all the right events or we buy them all the right presents. But we do have an obligation to acquaint our children with the scriptures, to see the word of God so saturate our homes that it seeps into the hearts and minds of those that live there. So Paul does not only emphasize the content of the faith that is passed along, he also draws our attention to the conduct and the character of those who are passing the faith. Look back at chapter 3, verse 14. But as you... But as for you, continue in what you have learned, content-wise, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. See, Paul points out that it's not just about what you've learned, but there's credibility in who it comes from. He's talking about both himself as well as his mother and grandmother. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. See, if we want the faith to stick in the ears that hear it, 
they also need to see it with their eyes. Because think about it, what makes for a great storyteller? There are plenty of people who can tell you a story, but there's something that makes a great storyteller. And this is someone who is able to make the words come alive. They're able to see it in their mind. They're able to weave the story in such a way that vibrant images begin to pop. Well, this is what we want to have as disciple makers. And we're using the language of family and children. There's so much of this that can be true when it just comes to discipling other believers. Because as disciples makers, the lives that we live are the evidences is the evidence of our faith. Our character, our actions, our conduct is what gives color to the message that we're proclaiming. See, when our lives match our confession, when what we do matches what we say, the gospel comes into focus. Do we want our disciples, do we want our kids to come to terms with the gravity of the gospel? then we must live in accordance with the confession that we make. But in all of this, as disciple makers, as parents, we must not forget and we must not assume that we can do this on our own. The task is too big for us by design. We are incapable of completing this charge on our own. We are in need of each other. We are in need of the church. See, we talk a lot about how parents are the primary disciple makers of their children. But what we must not be confused for saying is that parents are the sole disciple makers of their children. Timothy Paul Jones puts it this way, the gospel is to be rehearsed in the home and reinforced through the church. The church acts as an echo chamber for the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is not neglecting or ignoring the work of Lois and Eunice, but he recognizes that he is a disciple maker of Timothy. That Timothy must follow the pattern of his words as well. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no one good but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See, the church is meant to be an echo chamber of the gospel. Timothy is an elder at this church in Ephesus, and Paul charges him with setting this example of teaching the word, of teaching the word with faithfulness, of teaching the word with integrity. 
so that within the church, the gospel would reverberate amongst the members. See, this is one of the aspects of why we as a church have our children in this service, that we don't relegate them to children's church because the church is the gospel made visible. And on Sunday morning, when we gather corporately, this is the prime time slot. This is when the gospel is on full display. Everything that we do on Sunday mornings in corporate worship is intentional. The songs that we sing, the texts that we read, the prayers that we pray, and the ordinances that we practice, all of these contribute to the proclamation of the true gospel. And we want our children to see and to hear and experience what that looks like. That sinners are gathered together professing their collective faith in Christ and in Him alone. But it doesn't stop here for just the hour and a half that we have. We read this quote from a man named Jonathan Lehman. It says this, The preacher opens his mouth and utters a word, God's word. But the word doesn't just sound once. It echoes or reverberates. It reverberates through the church's music and prayer. It reverberates through the conversations between elders and members, members and guests, older Christians and younger Christians. God's word bounces around the life of the church like a metal ball in a pinball machine. But the reverberating words shouldn't stop there. The church building doors should open and God's word should echo out the doors, down the street and into the members' homes and workplaces. The reverberations of sound that began in the pulpit should eventually be bouncing off the walls in dining rooms, kitchens, and children's bedrooms, off gymnasium walls, cubicle dividers, and the inside of city bus windows. See, this is one of the properties of church, of the church, that within her members, the word of God is reflected off of our hearts and projected out to those around us by our words and by our actions. So my question for myself as well as you this morning, are we contributing to the echo or are we dampening the sound? And there's a few diagnostic questions that we can ask. The first, do the truths that we confess corporately here penetrate our home? Anytime God's word is open and taught, there are profound and life-altering, eternity-shaping truths that are proclaimed. Do our families, do our kids see us responding to these truths? Do they see us changing our lives in accordance to what God tells us? Number two, are the things of God regularly upon your lips and within the conversations of your home? See, we as humans are quite transparent when it comes to the things that we delight in. And one of the easiest indicators of what we take pride in, what we delight in, are the things that we talk about. Because we talk about what we enjoy. Is God a topic of conversation that we have? Do we talk about him with our children, in our homes, with our spouses? Or is it that when spiritual matters arise, is there a noticeable hush that comes over us? Number three, does your commitment to the church guide your schedule or does gathering with the church take a back seat to other engagements. See, we will make ourselves available for what we consider to be important. Is our family schedule, is our pattern of life driven by other commitments, 
Or is it driven by gathering with God's people, by worshiping our Lord corporately, by sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word? Number four, how often do the things of God find their way into conversations that we have with other members? We as the church, we who each confess faith in Christ, hope in him, are we talking about him amongst ourselves? Or are we content to discuss just the events of the week? I would challenge you today, today, after this service, to contribute to the reverberation of God's word. Have a conversation after this service ends with someone that is spiritually centered. Maybe this is prompted by a question. Has the Lord been teaching you something recently? Or maybe it's a ask for maybe it's a question of prayer. How can I pray for your spiritual life this week? Or maybe you offer something that you've been encouraged by of late, something the Lord has been teaching you. Or maybe you should point out an evidence of God's grace that you see in someone else's life, such as sister, I, I've seen you express such kindness and gentleness. This is a kindness of the Lord in your life. Or maybe it's brother, I've noticed how welcoming you are. Thank you for showing such hospitality to the guests here. Parents, this is the type of context that we want to raise our children in. We want them to see and experience what it looks like for God's people to delight in him, to talk about him. And so let's talk about him together. But not only is the church an echo chamber of the gospel, but she is also here to support us in our weakness. Parents, as I said before, we are insufficient for the task given to us. But God in his grace has given us a faith family. And one of the benefits of being a member of a local church is that she is able to provide for our children what we may not be able to give them. Timothy is a prime example of this. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that Timothy's mother is a believer, but that his father is not. And yet, because of the church, Timothy is not left spiritually fatherless. Look in chapter 1, verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved child. And then chapter 2, verse 1. You then... My child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. See, Paul is able to be a spiritual father to Timothy. He is able to provide an example of what it means to live a godly life, to be a godly man. In the same way, we should find these types of relationship with the, in the church for ourselves and for our children. We should seek these relationships out for our own benefit and for the benefit of others. Those of you who are empty nesters or parents with older children, seek out other fathers and mothers in the church and help guide them. Now, anytime that we are charged with setting an example for others, I think many of us have this fear of, well, I am not a good enough example. Well, let me clear the air for you a little bit. We know you're not perfect. That's really clear, okay? Just being honest with us. But the picture of discipleship within the church is not predicated upon one believer having reached full maturity. 
It is upon believers who go in humility, who find others and guide them in the faith. Seek out others to guide them. And I'm immensely grateful for the ways that this is happening at Southside, for the ways that this occurs specifically in our corporate discipleship of our children. We literally have hundreds of members who are serving our families and our kids, who are discipling them week in and week out. But what we need more of is a type of discipleship that is taking place in homes, in coffee shops, in d-groups. So pass the faith, but pass it collectively, pass it corporately, pass it in the church. Now, are any of us feeling overwhelmed yet? Do any of us sense the weight that is upon our shoulders of this task of passing the faith? Well, I want to make things worse for you. Not only is the task daunting at best, but we as the workers are broken. Yes, our weaknesses increase the difficulty, but our sin derails it altogether. We as parents, as disciples, as church members, we need the gospel. We need to be reminded that Christ has defeated the power of sin so that we who place our faith, who are in Christ, who are given the spirit, that we then may pursue obedience. Parents, you are a failure. And worse, you are a sinner. But praise be to God that Christ comes to the world to save sinners. So each one of us, each one of us as members of Christ's church here at Southside are participants in the raising of disciples. And this type of perspective then leads us to one conclusion, that our complete dependence is on the Lord to fulfill the good works that he has prepared beforehand. See, Paul instructs Timothy in the same way. He charges him with guarding the good deposit, guarding the integrity of the gospel message. But look what he says about this work in verse 14 of chapter 1. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So in the midst of our passing the faith in the home and in the church, we have to recognize that it is God who does the work. See, discipleship of all kinds, of any kind, is a supernatural act. It is a supernatural process. And we need desperately to grasp this reality, that that unless God, by his spirit and by his word, produces fruit, our efforts are in vain. This is why when we pass the faith, we do so by faith. It is by the Spirit's work within our hearts and the Spirit's work of carrying the Word of God from our lips to the hearts of our children that this task is accomplished. But this also has implications when things don't go according to plan. God has not designed that our children would be as calculators. That if we press the right buttons in the right order, the right answer will come out. And some of you know the heartbreak of this reality. That you, in submission to God and his ways, faithfully shared the gospel with your children, and yet now they are far from him. But I want to encourage you this morning not to lose hope. That the word of God does not return void. 
Now, this is not a promise that all who hear the gospel will be saved, but it is a promise that the gospel that is proclaimed will reach, reap the harvest it intends. That God, by his spirit, will work in the hearts and the minds of those who hear it. And that he will accomplish his purposes. So we must see the discipleship of our children in the faith as supernatural. So this morning, let us endeavor to pass the faith. Pass a true faith. A faith in Christ and in Christ alone. Let us pass it in our homes with faithfulness. Let us pass it corporately together. And let us pass it also by faith.